When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is the London Visited Podcast on your favourite podcast provider, bringing to you the facts, history and information about different parts of this great capital. If you have been to London, are planning on visiting, live here or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Steve and welcome to our podcast. We're here for all things London to tell you more behind some of the iconic places and people in London's history. In this episode, we go back for part two of looking at the British Museum. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering this place and so many others across London. Also, if you love the podcast and the channel, why not join us as a member? Join our group of what we like to call our London Visited Crown Jewels, where there are many different benefits, including a level with a members-only monthly podcast. Have a look by going to patreon.com forward slash London Visited. And now to this week's podcast. By the years of the 19th century, the British Museum's collections had increased to an extent that its buildings were no longer large enough. In 1895, the trustees purchased the 69 houses surrounding the museum, with the intention of demolishing them and building around the west, north and east sides of the museum. The first stage was the construction of the Northern Wing, beginning in 1906. All the while, the collections kept growing. M.L. Tordy collected in Central Africa, Oriol Steen in Central Asia, T.G. Hogarth Leonard Woolley and T.E. Lawrence excavated at Charmish. Around this time, the American collector and philanthropist J. Piermont Morgan donated a substantial number of objects to the museum, including William Greenwell's collection of prehistoric artifacts from across Europe, which he had purchased for £10,000 in 1908. Morgan had also acquired a major part of Sir John Evans's coin collection, which was later sold to the museum by his son, John Pierpoint Morgan Jr., in 1915. In 1918, because of the threat of wartime bombing, some objects were evacuated via the London Post Office Railway to Holborn, the National Library of Wales, Aberystwyth and a country house near Malvern. On the return of the antiquities from wartime storage in 1919, some objects were found to have deteriorated. A conservation laboratory was set up in May 1920 and became a permanent department in 1931. It is today the oldest in continuous existence. In 1923, the British Museum welcomed over one million visitors. The new mezzanine floors were constructed and book stacks rebuilt in an attempt to cope with a flood of books. In 1931, the art dealer Sir Joseph Duven offered funds to build a gallery for the Parthian sculptures. Designed by the American architect John Russell Pope, it was completed in 1938. The appearance of the exhibition galleries began to change as dark Victorian reds gave way to modern pastel shades. Following the retirement of George Francis Hill as director and principal librarian in 1936, 
he was succeeded by John Forsdyke. As tensions with Nazi Germany developed and it appeared that war may be imminent, Forsdyke came to the view that with the likelihood of far worse air raids than experienced in World War I, that the museum had to make preparations to remove its most valuable items to secure locations. Following the Munich crisis, Forsdyke ordered 3,300 no-nail boxes and stored them in the basement of Duvin Gallery. At the same time, he began identifying and securing suitable locations. As a result, the museum was able to quickly commence relocating selected items on the 24th of August 1939, a mere day after the Home Secretary advised them to do so, to secure basements, country houses, Ordwich Underground Station and the National Library of Wales. Many items were relocated in early 1942 from their initial dispersal locations to a newly developed facility at Westwood Quarry in Wiltshire. The evacuation was timely, for in 1940, the Duven Gallery was severely damaged by bombing. Meanwhile, prior to the war, the Nazis had sent a researcher to the British Museum for several years with the aim of compiling an anti-Semitic history or anglo jury After the war, the museum continued to collect from all countries and all centuries, among the most spectacular additions were the 2600 BC Mesopotamian treasure from Ur, discovered during Lionel Woolley's 1922-34 excavations, gold, silver and garnet grave goods from the Anglo-Saxon ship burial at Sutton Hoe, 1939, and late Roman silver tableware from Mildenhall, Suffolk, 1946. The immediate post-war years were taken up with the return of the collections from protection and the restoration of the museum after the Blitz. Work also begun on restoring the damaged Duven Gallery. In 1953, the museum celebrated its bicentenary. Many changes followed. The first full-time in-house designer and publications officer were appointed in 1964. The Friends organization was set up in 1968, an education service established in 1970, and publishing house in 1973. In 1963, a new Act of Parliament introduced administrative reforms. It became easier to lend objects, the constitution of the Board of Trustees changed and the Natural History Museum became fully independent. By 1959, the Coins and Medals office suite, completely destroyed during the war, was rebuilt and reopened. Attention turned towards the gallery work and new tastes in design leading to remodeling of Robert Smirk's classical and Near Eastern galleries. In 1962, the Duvain Gallery was finally restored and the Parthian sculptures were moved back into it, once again at the heart of the museum. By the 1970s, the museum was again expanding. More services for the public were introduced. Visitor numbers soared, with the temporary exhibition Treasures of Tutankhamun in 1972, attracting 1,694,117 visitors, the most successful in British history. In the same year, the Act of Parliament establishing the British Library was passed, separating the collection of manuscripts and printed books from the British Library. This left the museum with antiquities, coins, medals and paper money, prints and drawings, and ethnography. A pressing problem was finding space for additions to the library, which now required an extra one and a quarter miles, two kilometers of shelving each year. The government suggested a site at St Pancras for the new British Library, but the books did not leave the museum until 1997. The departure of the British Library to a new site at St Pancras finally arrived in 1998, provided the space needed for the books. It also created the opportunity to redevelop the vacant space in Robert Smirk's 19th century Central Quadrangle into the Queen Elizabeth II Great Court, the largest covered square in Europe, which opened in 2000. The ethnography collections, 
which had now been housed in the short-lived Museum of Mankind at Six Burlington Gardens from 1970, were returned to a new purpose-built galleries in the museum in 2000. The museum again readjusted its collecting policies as interest in modern objects, prints, drawings, medals, and the decorative arts reawakened. Ethnographical fieldwork was carried out in places as diverse as New Guinea, Madagascar, Romania, Guatemala, and Indonesia, and there were excavations in the Near East, Egypt, Sudan, and the UK. The Western Gallery of Roman Britain, opened in 1997, displayed a number of recently discovered hordes, which demonstrate the richness of what had been considered an unimportant part of the Roman Empire. The museum turned increasingly towards private funds for buildings, acquisitions, and other purchases. Today, the museum no longer houses collections of natural history, and the books and manuscripts it once held now form part of the independent British Library. The museum, nevertheless, preserves its universality in its collections of artefacts representing the cultures of the world, ancient and modern. Hey, Billy, why don't we tell them what we're about, man? So we're here to welcome you to the Madhouse Chronicles. It's a talk show with myself, Billy Morrison, and, me, and this man, Prince of Darkness, and we watch and react to the maddest internet clips. What do we discuss, Ozzy? Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, all that kind of shit. Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, and all that kinds of shit. Come and join Ozzy and myself. Visit OsborneMediaHouse.com to get special access to... Come to, on! What do you say? Do you think it's the the wildest show on the internet? (laughs) The original 1753 collection has grown to over 13 million objects at the British Library, 70 million at the Natural History Museum, and 150 million at the British Library. The original 1753 collection has grown to over 13 million objects at the British Museum, 70 million at the Natural History Museum, and over 150 million at the British Library. The Round Reading Room, which was designed by the architect Sidney Smirk, opened in 1857. For almost 150 years, researchers came here to consult in the museum's vast library. The Reading Room closed in 1997, when the National Library, the British Library, moved to a new building at St Pancras. Today it has been transformed into the Water in Leonore Einberg Centre. With the bookstacks and the central courtyard of the museum empty, the demolition for Lord Foster's glass-roofed Great Court could begin. The Great Court opened in 2000. While undoubtedly improving circulation around the museum, it was criticised for having a lack of exhibition space at the time, when the museum was in serious financial difficulties and many galleries were closed to the public. At the same time, the African collections that had been temporarily housed in six Burlington Gardens were given a new gallery in the North Wing, funded by the Sainsbury family, with a donation valued at £25 million. As part of its very large website, The museum has the largest online database of objects in the collection of any museum in the world, with 2 million individual object entries, 650,000 of them illustrated, online at the start of 2012. There is also a highlights database with longer entries on over 4,000 objects and several specialised online research catalogues and online journals, all free to access. In 2013, the museum's website received 19.5 million visits, an increase of 47% from the previous year. In 2013, the museum received a record 6.7 million visitors, an increase of 20% from the previous year. Popular exhibitions including The Life and Death in Pompeii and Herculaneum and Ice Age Art were credited with helping fuel the increase in visitors. Plans were announced in September 2014 to recreate the entire building along with all exhibits in the video game Minecraft in conjunction with the members of the public. 
a number of films have also been shot at the British Museum. The Greek Revival facade facing Great Russell Street is a characteristic building of Sir Robert Smirk, with 44 columns in the Ionic order, 45 feet, 14 meters high, closely based on those from the Temple of Athnopiolosis and Preen in Asia Minor. The pediment over the main entrance is decorated by sculptures by Sir Richard Westmacott, depicting the progress of civilization consisting of 15 allegorical figures, installed in 1852. The construction commenced around the courtyard with the East Wing, the King's Library, in 1823 to 1828, followed by the North Wing in 1833 to 1838, which originally housed, among other galleries, a reading room, now the Welcome Gallery. Work was also progressing on the northern half of the West Wing, the Egyptian Sculpture Gallery, between 1826 and 1831, with Montague House demolished in 1842 to make room for the final part of the West Wing, completed in 1846, and the South Wing with its Great Colonnade, initiated in 1843 and completed in 1847, when the front hall and Great Staircase were open to the public. The museum is faced with Portland stone, but the perimeter walls and other parts of the building were built using Hayter granite from Dartmoor in South Devon, transported via the unique Hayter Granite Tramway. In 1846, Robert Smirk was replaced as the museum's architect by his brother, Sidney Smirk, whose major addition was the round reading room between 1854 and 1857. At 140 feet, 43 meters in diameter, it was the second widest dome in the world, the Pantheon in Rome being slightly wider. The next major addition was the White Wing, 1882 to 1884, added behind the eastern end of the South Front, and the architect being Sir John Taylor. In 1895, Parliament gave the museum trustees a loan of £200,000 to purchase from the Duke of Bedford all 69 houses, which backed onto the museum building in the five surrounding streets Great Russell Street, Montague Street, Montague Place, Bedford Square, and Bloomsbury Street. The trustees plan to demolish these houses and build around the west, north, and east sides of the museum new galleries that would completely fill the block on which the museum stands. The architect, Sir John James Burnett was petitioned to put forward ambitious long-term plans to extend the building on all three sides. Of his grand plan, only the Edward VII galleries in the centre and north front were ever constructed. These were built in 1906 to 1914 to the design by J.J. Burnett and opened by King George V and Queen Mary in 1914. They now house the museum's collection of prints and drawings and oriental antiquities. There was not enough money to put up more new buildings and so the houses in the other streets are nearly all still standing. The Duveen Gallery, sited to the west of the Egyptian, Greek and Asraean sculpture galleries, was designed to house the Elgin Marbles by the American Beaux-Arts architect John Russell Pope. Although completed in 1938, it was hit by a bomb in 1940 and remained semi-derelict for 22 years before reopening in 1962. Other areas damaged by World War II bombing included, in September 1940, two unexploded bombs hit the Edward VII galleries. The King's Library received a direct hit from a high-explosive bomb. Incendiaries fell on the dome of the round reading room, but did little damage. On the night of the 10th to the 11th of May, 1941, several incendiary devices fell on the southwest corner of the museum, destroying the book stack and 150,000 books in the courtyard and the galleries around the top of the Great Staircase. This damage was not fully repaired until the early 1960s. The Queen Elizabeth II Great Court is a covered square at the centre of the British Museum, designed by the engineers Brewer Haphold and architects Foster and Partners. The Great Court opened in December 2000 and is the largest covered square in Europe. The roof is a glass and steel construction 
built by an Austrian steelwork company, with 1,656 uniquely shaped panes of glass. At the centre of the Great Court is the reading room, vacated by the British Library, its function now moved to St Pancras. The reading room is open to any member of the public who wishes to read there. Today, the British Museum has grown to become one of the largest museums in the world, covering an area of over 92,000 square metres, 990,000 square feet. In addition to 21,600 square metres, 232,000 square feet of on-site storage space and 9,400 square metres, 101 square feet of external storage space. Altogether, the British Museum showcases on public display less than 1% of its entire collection, approximately 50,000 items. There are nearly 100 galleries open to the public, representing 2 miles, 3.2 kilometres of exhibition space, although the less popular ones have restricted opening times. However, the lack of a large temporary exhibition space led to the £135 million World Conservation and Exhibition Centre to provide one and to concentrate all the museum's conservation facilities into one centre. This project was announced in July 2007. It was granted planning permission in December 2009 and was completed in time for the Viking exhibition in March 2014. In 2017, the World Conservation and Exhibition Centre was shortlisted for the Sterling Prize for Excellence in Architecture. Blythe House in West Kensington is used by the museum for off-site storage of small and medium-sized artifacts, and Frank's House in East London is used for storage and work on the early prehistory, Paleolithic and Mesolithic, and some other collections. So, I hope you've enjoyed our second part look at the British Library. We have another part for you next week, where we'll start looking at the different departments. If you'd like to make contact with us or suggest any places you'd like us to feature in future podcasts, you can let me know through our website, londonvisited.co.uk, or via our social media. It's that easy. Thanks for listening. Really hope you enjoyed our podcast and we'll see you soon on the next one. Bye. Thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one.